So what happens when Americans actually stand up to tyranny? Well, the Battle of Blair Mountain happens. What if I told you that at one point in America's history, up to 13,000 Americans took up arms and fought their tyrants? We're talking corrupt government officials, corrupt law enforcement agencies, and government-supported crony corporations. Would you believe me? And then what if I told you that during this fight, more than a million rounds were fired between these Americans in a battle that lasted over three days? There's more. What if I told you that aircraft were used to drop bombs on Americans on the ground? You'd say, that was the Civil War. And then I'd remind you that there were no bomber aircraft during the Civil War. But finally, what if I told you that this battle took place in 1921? Well, yeah, all of that actually happened. And when I heard about it a few years back, I wondered why I had never heard about it before. Shouldn't this be taught in schools? Well, apparently not. My name is Kali, and welcome to the upcoming American Revolution podcast. Today I'm going to talk about the Battle of Blair Mountain. We're going to talk about what it was all about, why it happened, and why you've never heard of it. I'll also touch on what it means to an upcoming American Revolution. So yeah, the Battle of Blair Mountain. What went down, you ask? Well, this entire episode in American history starts years before the actual battle did. And depending on who you are, you may believe that it was actually doomed to occur eventually. And it was all based on the way coal companies were run. How it works is a coal company would discover a coal deposit and start mining it. If the deposit was found in a remote area with no cities or towns around it, the miners would come in, they would set up a camp around the mines. The longer the camp was there, and the more miners that were required, the more the companies were responsible for ensuring that all the miners had food, homes, and the illusion that they were living a good, fruitful life. Because if the miners were unhappy, they wouldn't work at the mine, and the mine wouldn't be productive and it would go out of business eventually. The mining companies had to act as though they really cared about their miners, so they would ensure that they had a minimum amount of comfort, some recreation, and some hot food. But the mining companies also learned that they could make money in more ways than just through the coal that they were selling. Coal companies figured out that they could build basic towns that would keep the miners comfortable and allow some of them to bring their families to live with them near the mines. The miners would be happier, they would be more productive, and they would stay longer. But it costs a lot of money to make a town. The mining companies learned that they could cover the costs of the towns they built around the mines by passing the costs on to the miners. They learned that they could sell the miners their clothing, their food, energy, housing, water, the schooling for their kids, and well, they wanted to sell them everything. But unfortunately, the problem with this plan is that the mining town always grows. Eventually, it requires more infrastructure such as roads, power, homes, and this is all to support more people and their varied needs. This growth, of course, requires more money to maintain the town, which requires the company to pay more to support the mining town itself, which in turn urges the mining company to raise prices to its customers and to raise the prices to its miners living in its town. Now, obviously, in a fair and an open capitalist market, house prices naturally rise, and so does the price of goods and services along with the pay of the employees. But a mining town is not a free market, 
and they definitely do not want to raise the pay of their miners. To them, growth only hurts those who own the property and provide the services, which, of course, is the mining company. They want to make money on coal. They don't want to invest in a town that they can only lose money on. And they will lose money if they don't raise the pay of their employees. And that would allow them to raise the price of the goods and services their employees want and need. But still, they'd have to raise the pay of their employees. Economic truths and realities cannot be avoided. And this was all underlined by the reality that the mine will eventually run dry. It'll close and it'll be abandoned as it becomes unproductive. These towns were doomed and never made economic sense to an organization based upon making profits. Everything mining companies did in these days, every bit of business and every transaction and financial decision was made to save the mining company's money. And as a rule, those decisions were to the detriment of the miners. If products didn't make financial sense, the mine's general stores wouldn't carry them. If a food product was too expensive, the mine's commissaries wouldn't carry it. The towns would regularly run out of food staples, wheat, flour. They'd run out of pants. They'd run out of candles and every other product that would never be in short supply in a town not running by a mining company. But let's step back. Imagine you're a coal miner in 1920. You're as poor as dirt. You work for a mining company. You crawl into a mine shaft every day to mine in deep, dark, dangerous conditions, and people die every week in those mines. You know it's dangerous. You've long accepted that if you don't die in the mine, you'll probably die of the black lung. That's rough, right? But then imagine if you live in a house owned by that same coal company. Imagine your kids go to a school owned by the same coal company. Imagine if you had to buy food and energy from that same coal company. Eventually, you'd realize that you can't make enough money to get ahead, that you're just surviving month to month, barely. Well, you'd just leave, right? You'd save up a couple months' pay, rent a house in another town, pack up your junk, and move somewhere else, right? Wrong. Because that company also pays you in scrip, which is basically company-created money. And unfortunately, you can only buy stuff that the mining company sells with that useless scrip. From food, to clothing, to fuel, to whatever. And the prices are out of whack with what miners actually make. Script does not align to a certain dollar amount. It can vary however the mine company chooses. If they need to make money that month, they can devalue the script and raise prices of everything. But hey, the mining company will front you some money if you need. It'll let you have credit that you'll have to pay back, obviously with some interest of course. But that lending becomes the norm. Miners go into debt regardless of how much they work. With every bit of food, clothing, or any other supplies, they go further in debt. All miners will eventually find themselves in significant debt to the mining company. And that's exactly how the mining companies like it. They actually want all of their employees indebted to them. That means they'll stay longer, they'll work harder, and they'll be more compliant. To make it worse, the miner's pay is determined by how much coal the miner brings out of the mine. But that doesn't really matter, because the miner doesn't have access to the dubious and questionable scales used to weigh what he's brought out of the mine. At the end of every shift, arguments ensue with the guy that weighs the coal. 
That wayman always seems to knock off a few pounds claiming low-quality coal or too much dirt. But no one wants to argue because they'll only get on his bad side. Curiously, though, the wayman is doing pretty good for himself. He has a large house, a nice car, and the mining company listens to him. In fact, they'll always take his side in the case of any disagreement. Even if the books that he uses to track weights and thus miner pay is inaccurate, the company will still believe him over any miner. It seemed that the wayman always records that every miner brought out less than he actually did. With every workday, you as a miner will go deeper in debt with the company, and that means you cannot quit because you owe the mining company money. If the mining company tells a local sheriff or constable that you owe them money and you tried to leave, you'll be going to jail for theft. The system is set up against you. Now there comes a point that you as a miner, well, you may not be a slave, but you're definitely not free. You're really more like an indentured servant. So, even if today you're not big on unions like many of us modern Americans aren't, if you worked for a company like this back in the 1920s, wouldn't you want to be a part of a union? You'd ask for some safety considerations and upgrades so people don't die recklessly. You'd want some rudimentary access to see the scales. You'd ask that if you die in the mine, your family gets some money and some time to grieve and move out of the mining town. And you definitely wouldn't want your 10-year-old son having to go work in the mine the day after you die to pay for the debt that you built to support your family. And as a matter of fact, you'd ask that 9- and 10-year-old boys be banned from working in the mines. You wouldn't want minor miners. Get it? Minor miners? Sorry, anyways. You'd also want to be paid in U.S. dollars. Well, obviously I wasn't there, but I'm absolutely 100% certain that the mining companies would not like their miners unionized because obviously it'll cost them money. It'll also cost them leverage and power. So the mining companies said, hell no. But instead of starving for the companies, the miners went on strike and the mining companies weren't having it. They called in some strike breakers from the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Many of these detectives were ex-soldiers, mercenaries, fighters, and even assorted criminals and murderers. What did they do? Well, they threatened people. They beat people. They stole from everyone. And surprise to no one, they murdered miners and their family members sometimes. Yep, in order to keep miners in check, they kicked families of those who joined the union out of their homes into tents. And at one point, they even ran a train dubbed the Death Special through a tent city that sprouted up because they were firing miners. The Death Special consisted of Baldwin Feltz agents shooting machine guns into tents and indiscriminately killing people, including women and some kids. They wanted union members off company property. But apparently murdering miners wasn't illegal back then because most law enforcement and most local governments did absolutely nothing. Yes, this all happened in the United States. After a bit of that, despite all the attacks, violence, and killing, the miners continued to organize, and they joined the United Mine Workers of America. And the coal companies had enough. They continued to lose more and more miners to the union. As they fired union members, it was getting less and less profitable to run their mines. They had less people, and they couldn't hire any more. Several mines got together and hired the Baldwin Feltz Agency again. This time, Baldwin Feltz entered a town called Matawan, and that's Matawan, West Virginia. Matawan's police chief was named Sid Hatfield, and the mayor, his name was Cabell Testerman. 
They supported the Union. And of all things, they would not allow Baldwin Feltz to set up machine gun posts in the town. That's crazy, right? They did this and they allowed the Unions to have rallies within the town of Metuan. The mining companies and Baldwin Feltz Agency did not like this one bit. They tried to bribe Mayor Testament and Chief Hatfield, but they wouldn't take the money. After an attempt to evict some miners from a coal camp, a fight between miners and 14 Baldwin Feltz guys erupted. No one really knows how it started, but a gunfight with Sheriff Sid Hatfield followed. In the end, seven Baldwin Feltz guys, two miners, and Mayor Testerman himself lay dead. Baldwin Feltz killed the mayor. Unfortunately, two of the people killed were the brothers of the founder of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, and he was not happy. Because of politics within the state, Sheriff Hatfield and his men were put on trial and found not guilty for initiating the gunfight. But it didn't matter. Later, Baldwin Feltz ambushed and murdered Sheriff Hatfield, a deputy sheriff, and their two wives right on the courthouse steps with Tommy guns. The local coal companies murdered a sheriff like the mobsters were killing each other in New York City at the time, while they were unarmed, which actually meant something back then. But it didn't matter. Sheriff Hatfield had become a local hero for standing up to the mining companies. He was already a legend from being a Hatfield from the Hatfield and McCoy feud, but Sheriff Hatfield's murder was enough. Miners throughout the region were now getting blocked from joining the Union, but the unionized miners became enraged because of this, especially considering that no Baldwin Feltz guys were going to be charged for Sid Hatfield's murder. So after a Union rally, miners decided they would initiate another strike and march to a nearby mine to help those miners join the Union. Allowing miners to strike would close down the mine. It would also set a bad precedent throughout the region, and that hit a nerve with all the corrupt government officials throughout the area. Many local government officials were taking bribes or otherwise getting money from the mining companies and the mining industry as a whole. The federal government was getting tax monies and being lobbied by the coal companies. Even the governor of West Virginia understood how coal money was benefiting his interests. Many people, organizations, companies, and governments were making a lot of money while the miners did the dangerous work. And so the miners marched. As they attempted to enter Mingo County, a sheriff there, Don Chafin, who was also reportedly benefiting financially from the coal company bribes, moved in to stop the miners from entering his county. Unfortunately for him, the deputies he sent to disarm the marchers were quickly overpowered and disarmed themselves. They were allowed to surrender by the miners and ran for their lives. Sheriff Chafin was pissed! He gathered up a posse of nearly 3,500 law enforcement, state militia members, and surprised no one, Baldwin Feltz detective agents. Chafin and his collected posse set up a defensive line right on the ridge line of Blair Mountain. More and more miners grabbed their guns and started marching with the hope of helping miners throughout the region to go on strike and join the Union. As more and more miners began to arrive, there was a sordid gunfire and both sides began to probe defenses and establish fighting positions facing each other. In spite of attempts to ensure no violence erupted, word got up to the miners that Chafin's forces were killing miners and their family members down the mountain. There is no doubt Sheriff Chafin wanted to severely deter and discourage any future strikes, but his plan did not work 
and on August 29th, sustained gunfire erupted and continued. Word spread of the minor battle. Miners from around the region grabbed their guns and started marching also. Some of the miners down the mountain even seized the coal company train and used that to transport even more miners to the area. The arriving miners would then head up to the Blair Mountain to help. Both sides shot at each other from behind trees and rocks. Dynamite was thrown like grenades. Dust clouds, smoke, gunfire, machine gun bursts, and explosion were seen and heard for miles. During hours of darkness, campfires were seen, and gunshots were still heard as the fighting subsided. This was an actual battle. To this day, 100 years later, you can apparently go to what remains of the battlefield and find bullet casings and leftover artifacts from the fighting. More than a million rounds would be fired in anger. The front line stretched over 10 miles. Who won? Well, Chafin's forces arrived first and held the high ground, so they were able to shoot down upon the miners. They successfully stopped them from advancing forward. Although the miners had far superior numbers, they also had to fight uphill and they were generally less experienced fighters. Chafin and his posse had far better weapons. They even had large machine guns, grenades. They would even use private aircraft paid for by Baldwin Feltz Agency to drop tear gas and bombs on the miners. Yes, they bombed Americans from aircraft. Although I don't see any evidence of successful airstrikes, they did do the bombing. President of the United States Warren G. Harding was paying attention. He did not approve of the miners' strikes or their unionization. He believed that the miners were at fault and he supported their destruction. Harding even put the entire state of West Virginia under martial law. He did this so he could send 2,000 soldiers and Army Air Corps military aircraft to provide aerial reconnaissance. Political cartoons of the day showed President Harding standing behind a machine gunner and the owner of one of the mining companies watching the attack on the miners. The Battle of Blair Mountain would even make it into national news. It made the cover of the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times amongst others. It was a huge story at the time. People were wounded, injured, and killed on both sides. There are no official numbers, and no one seems to know for sure exactly how many people were killed. However, some figures suggest that about 75 miners and 25 of Chasen's forces were killed. But other figures suggest that as many as 120 miners and 180 of Chafin's forces were killed. But I guess the actual number will die with history. The fighting ended on the 2nd of September 1921 when the U.S. military arrived. The miners believed that the U.S. military would take the miners' side against the local coal companies. So upon word, cheers and celebrations ensued. Many of the miners came down the mountain and turned in their weapons, ammo, and explosives to the military. They started going home, only to find that some of Chasen's men and Baldwin Feltz personnel were still murdering miners and their families, but now they had less means to defend themselves. And this leads us to lesson number one. Don't trust the military and government to protect your life. The surrendering miners turned their guns in and many of them were killed while unarmed. But in the end, small skirmishes occurred for months as the miners failed to produce as much coal as they did prior to the battle. The coal companies lost revenue, and eventually they had to make some concessions to their now coordinating and largely unionized workforce. After the battle, nearly 900 miners would be taken to court, but systematically, 
juries threw most of the charges out and found nearly all of the miners innocent. Some would serve minuscule jail times, but miners would earn a measure of respect from the coal companies nationwide. They would earn more fair wages. They'd get basic safety concessions. Young boys would be barred from working in most mines, and some of the basic benefits would be provided for miners. They would also, most importantly, get paid in U.S. dollars. Crazy, crazy. Now, why don't you think you've ever heard of this story about 13,000 Americans in armed conflict with crony government? Obviously, government does not want you to hear about certain events in history because they represent ideas that government does not want to confront. And obviously, no government wants to see this happen. We all have to recognize that governments will never support citizens fighting against tyranny when that tyranny benefits government. But shouldn't the real focus be on corruption of government officials, bribes, and law enforcement, and local politicians? Apparently, corruption is another thing that government does not want to confront. But why is the Battle of Blair Mountain so important to a future American Revolution? It's important because at the time, it involved actual combat. It was the largest battle since the Civil War. I don't even think to this point, more than a hundred years later in 2022, I don't think there's been any larger single battles on American soil since this. And it pitted corrupt and crony government against citizens. It shows that citizens should be extremely selective about trusting their government to protect their individual rights. Because the government, back then, did not protect the miners. Their actions led to the change, led to the improvement of the mines. Government never would have done it. And if you don't doubt that, you should understand that government was working with the mining companies, and it was working with the politicians who were taking money and donations from the mining companies. Lawmakers, judges, community leaders, and even law enforcement personnel benefited from bribes, contributions, and donations. The very people who had been elected and had a duty to protect the individual citizen and their individual rights had a financial interest in supporting a private business and an industry who had been paying them off. The judges, the mayors, the sheriffs, and others who worked for local, state, and federal governments, they were all okay with this indentured servitude and, I'm going to say it, slavery of the individual miners. And they were citizens of the United States. And it was after slavery had been officially abolished in the United States. They all supported it. So long as it didn't affect their money, they saw no problems. That's the truth. And to wrap it all up into modern times, no good can come when government coordinates or colludes with corporations whose sole purpose it is to make money. When they collude, the corporations or industries are put into a position where their products, goods, or services are supported by the force of government. And if you think that may have been the case in 1921, but that surely could not be the case in 2021, you'd just be kidding yourself. Remember when governments and corporations colluded after COVID mysteriously and totally naturally hit the planet in 2020? The U.S. government pushed drug companies to create a set of vaccines. The actual testing to bring new drugs to the market was truncated, by which I mean testing was non-existent. But to get the drug companies to make them available, the drug companies were given immunity from lawsuits. Even to this day, 
You cannot sue Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson for any damages associated with their COVID vaccines. If you were to get a vaccine injury, like a stroke or your kid dies of heart inflammation, you're just shit out of luck. And then what makes the collusion even worse is that governments throughout the country, state, local, and federal, the same very entity that has a monopoly of force, these are governments, can force or mandate. They can tell every American that they must get the shot. Americans have to buy it, get it injected, get a non-tested experimental drug put into their bodies, in which the companies who made them have immunity from lawsuits. Well, it was crony government. The drug companies got rich, and people like congressmen use their insider information to buy stock of those companies, and they also get filthy rich. They accept lobby money or accept campaign donations. The federal employee in charge of the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, gets to recommend the mandates, but he is getting paid by drug companies as well as the federal government. That's Dr. Fauci, by the way. According to the reports, while working for the federal government, he's made millions from these vaccine mandates. If that's not corruption, I don't know what is. Yes, these miners were heroes. They stood up to the tyranny that faced them. Their spirit is the spirit of freedom and liberty. The only question that really matters is whether or not modern America is producing people just like them. Because it is 100% guaranteed that future Americans are going to have to stand up to governments. Well, I think that's it. Thank you for stopping by the upcoming American Revolution podcast. I really appreciate you. So those are my thoughts. Thank you for stopping by the American Revolution podcast. You can contact me at the upcomingamericanrevolution.com. Go to the bottom of the page and you'll see a message box. I'm always up for your questions or topics you'd like me to discuss. Subscribe now to the upcoming American Revolution podcast wherever you listen to podcasts at. Thank you so much and we'll talk to you next time.